Genre. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great character in a great story. I'm Joe Dorowski, and this week we're discussing George and Ursula from the film George of the Jungle. And joining me for the discussion is returning guest Ryan Haupt. Welcome back, Ryan. Oh! <laughs> I wasn't expecting that, but it probably should have been. <laughs> That's on me. Feels, feels like that was the obvious choice. but. Yes. <laughs> And uh, Andrew, you watched this film recently, so you're going to jump in on the discussion as well, right? Yeah. Uh, We are talking about George of the Jungle, a 1997 film starring Brendan Fraser as George, Leslie Mann as Ursula Stanhope, and Thomas Hayden Church as Lyle Vandegroot. It was directed by Sam Weissman and written by Dana Olson and Audrey Wells, and it tells the story of George, a Tarzan parody, who is discovered in the jungle by Ursula and then brought to San Francisco. And hijinks and silliness ensue. Ryan... I love the fact that this was a request from you for us to talk about George of the Jungle. But I also love the fact that you said, if you ever want to talk about George of the Jungle, I'm in. And I said, I literally just watched this last week with my kid. So <laughs> we were on the same page when it comes to George of the Jungle. But why George of the Jungle? Why is that something you want to come talk about? Uh, that's a good question. So, um, I, you know, we had this discussion before the, I, I don't even want to call it a Brendan Fraser Assance, Renaissance or whatever, because like to me, Brendan Fraser has always been in, in my heart. Um, I think, you know, my wife and I have always connected over the Brendan Fraser, uh, the Brendan Fraser filmography. I loved mm-hmm. George of the Jungle growing up. Um, I think you know, she like like many uh, people, roughly our age, we're in our mid thirties, had you know some degree of sexual awakening thanks to the Mummy with both Brandon <laughs> Fraser and Rachel Vice in like prime. I mean, they're both still like prime, but like it was, you know, it was prime prime. Like it, you know, they're, they're, there's a lot happening in that film that it's I think one of it's, those films where you're just like, this is a stunning cast, just if you're, stunning humans. If you're slightly prepubescent, that might push you over the line. So, <laughs> um. So, and I just, I, uh, as a kid, George's Jungle was on my rotation. I watched it a lot, you know, it came out in 97. So I would have been 11, kind of the perfect age for this sort of movie. And, and the reason I think it came up the last time I was on the show, and we, we were talking about things is, you know, like many couples, my wife and I fall into the rut of just like, well, let's hang out, let's watch something. And then we never know what to watch. And we're, uh, what's, you know, what thousand streaming services have, you know, are, are we, logging into or do we need to call a friend to get their login info or see what our parents have changed the password to and and there was just a, an evening where somehow george of the jungle showed up on our list of options and we both were just like do you want to watch george of the jungle and we started watching it and within minutes we were laughing as hard as we've ever remembered laughing together at a film and we didn't stop laughing the whole way through. Like it's an incredibly funny movie. We're both absolutely charmed by Brennan Fraser, absolutely charmed by Leslie Mann. Uh, Thomas Hayden Church turns in an excellent villain performance. And, and like the, the, the level of comedy, it's not, it's clever without being um, smug about its cleverness. And we just enjoyed every moment of it. And we had a great time watching that. The, the movie to the point where it's like, man, I don't know why this isn't in the canon of like great comedic movies that, that exist. So um, I think we had watched it within a couple of weeks of the last time I was on the show talking about 
you know, my, my theoretical dinner guests. And I think when we last recorded, there was just starting to be buzz around the whale, the the performance that Brandon Fraser might win his Oscar for. We don't know yet. Mm-hmm. I have not seen the whale yet, but I saw an interview with GQ where Brandon Fraser was doing his like rundown of all of his different characters. And when they asked him about Joe the jungle, they're, like Brandon Fraser's face lights up with a smile and he goes, Oh, George is such a good guy. George just wants to help. And I was like, Oh man, I love that. That's his interpretation of the character. Like I love that. And we'll talk about this more. I think as we get into the discussion, but I love a character who is guileless in a way where none of the other characters in the movie, as cynical as they are, can, can sort of, um, lure him into being a bad person like his goodness is inherent and all he wants to do is help and even if he's a bit of a screw up or even if he isn't always going about it the right way his heart is so in the right place that you can't help but root for him and even when people are trying to pull, pull a fast one on him he always has the upper hand because he's such a good dude and I think that's like I don't know I just think it's an important character trait and I think we see it in in some of the great movie characters that that I personally really respond to like there's something about a Luke Skywalker who like Luke Skywalker knows he could force choke anyone if he wanted to but he doesn't because like he wants to be a good guy and George of the Jungle like he low-key has superpowers like he can throw logs miles across the jungle but like he never uses it other than in the service of playing with his dog so there's just something wholesome that I think makes the comedy and the romance of this movie really sing. And so I don't know. I just, I love George. That um, kind of wholesome guilelessness. It reminds me of Paddington bear. Uh, and I, I think a lot of people are like embrace Paddington. Cause it's like, Oh, it's just a good character. Like it's just, just goodness. Uh, and, it, and there's times where like you, you need a shot of that of, uh, of someone who's, whose like motivation is to be good. <laughs> That's it. And, I, and I think it's interesting juxtaposed with a character like ape who is highly intelligent, very well read, isn't necessarily always trying to tell George to do the right thing, but like he's in his corner and they're mm-hmm. both in each other's corner. And I think like, it's a really, it's interesting that like George, you know, there's nothing about, we don't learn anything about the way George was raised that should inform his inherent goodness. It's just, innate and i think that's i think that's really interesting uh andrew do you remember when you first came to georgia the jungle uh i'm sure it was 97 or 98 i don't think i saw it in theaters i might have but it definitely saw it at home yeah and and i don't i i can't remember if it was like a dvd or if it was a vhs or it would or, be vhs at that point well depending <laughs> it was on nine, my, it was exactly. 97 like, depe- like if we didn't get it for two years it could have been a dvd yeah that's uh, true and 97 and so, is on the cusp of a yeah, lot of things yeah. happening. To write, but the dvds were really expensive still uh, this is I, this is two I, years away from the matrix wow yeah. think about that uh well and and two years away from the mummy which you which you mentioned uh i did in, in watching it's, it, it's also it's insane that the Mummy and the Matrix came out in the same year. <laughs> what a year! Uh, but so my wife and I were watching it last night, and my wife Kestra looked and she's like, "Brendan Fraser looks so young in this, and the Mummy's just two years away. Like it feels like they must have been filmed five years apart because he looks really youthful in this, and he looks very different in the Mummy." Um, 
I think I think a lot of that comes down to costuming and and, and, and hair and attitude. And, and, yeah, he, like he is so childlike in this. That's Whereas like, he's well, the he's, grizzled, he so sardonic, uh, world weary character mm-hmm. in Mummy. Yeah, well, and I assume that after filming George of the Jungle, um, he was allowed to like put on body fat percentage beyond two percent because he is so lean in this. Yeah, it is. Like it is like he has like the Hugh Jackman shoulder veins and everything well, ten years the, before Hugh Jackman starts doing that, which is it's just wild. Well, there's so much about this movie that's prescient. I think. I mean the 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 meta comedy, the the winking at the camera. There's literally a mid credit sequence. Mm-hmm. Like this is mm-hmm. 1997, and they this is not Iron Man in 2008. Like Iron Man is 11 years away at this point, and they break into the credits to be like, "Wait, don't you want to see this other scene that we filmed?" <laughs> and, and the other thing, I mean, Andrew, I, I, I like that point because, like, when you talk about him being lean, he's lean, but he's not Hugh Jackman in that he's like not jacked. He's no, just, he's he's just fit and trim. Yeah. Um. But yeah, like I remember this. From the time I was a kid, you know, somewhere in the late 90s, knowing about this movie and and watching it multiple. I oh, my gosh, I know how I saw it. We rented it. (laughs) We rented it on like a Friday night and probably watched it twice that weekend. Yeah, that's got to get those views in when you're that's what the late 90s kind of night was. Joseph, this would have been the kind of movie mom and dad would get us when it was like the kids can like get our sleeping bags out and camp out on a Friday night. Sleep yeah. in our clothes and not brush our teeth. <laughs> the ultimate remember, Friday night. I don't remember the not brushing our teeth part, but okay. It was, it was allowed on the Friday nights. Okay. Um, which is how I saw a lot of movies. Yeah. Um, but no, I, I assume that's what it was. So that Mom and dad would have rented something for them, and then they would have rented something for the kids. Which is really, like, for the kids, we think it's a special treat. But now I realize it's, mom and dad just want us to be downstairs. <laughs> they just wanted, yeah, they just wanted the kids to be in a separate <laughs> like, space for for a full night. Just need, a, just need to relax. <laughs> but then I would watch Saturday morning cartoons in the morning, and that's how I got into that sort of stuff. So it was, you know, it was a really great dynamic. I remember those nights fondly. Uh, but yeah, I'm sure that this was rented. That's how we watched it. So um, some trivia about this well, uh, property of George of the Jungle, and then this film in particular. <laughs> So George of the Jungle was first a 1967 cartoon created by Jay Ward and Bill Scott. It's obviously a parody of Edgar Rice Burroughs' Tarzan. That character first appeared in 1912. Jay Ward and Bill Scott created the Rocky Bullwinkle Show, Dudley Do-Right, Peabody and Sherman, and which, many other which cartoons. I saw Dudley Do-Right in your notes, but you left out a very important piece of the Dudley Do-Right. The, the, yeah, that this is another Brand, Brand, uh, Brendan Fraser live action role Th- is Dudley you. Do-Right. Yes. Uh, yeah, somehow he got onto the uh, the Ward and Scott. Well, uh, he, I 19- mean, he's Canadian. <laughs> I think That's there might the secret. Not. Yeah, so, I think, I think there, there might. These are canon texts. These are core texts for, for the Canadian children. I was also thinking about like the fact that Brendan Fraser is in Blast from the Past. So this isn't even really the only time he's played like sort of the the man out of time. So like, mm-hmm. there's, um, I think he's got a type, but he plays it well. And I realized when I was putting in this trivia that Weird Al did a cover of the George of the Jungle theme song on his 1985 album, Dare to be Stupid. Um, that song is used in this film, and it's also used in the credits for the 2007 remake of the animated series. There was a, um, a remake. And I realized as a kid, I think I knew the theme song, George, George, George of the Jungle, watch out for that tree. 
Mm -hmm. and I had never seen the show and it must be because of that weird owl track, Um, you know, being a child of the eighties and, and on the nerdy side of the spectrum, weird owl was of course, well, well consumed. Uh, My my wife was saying she had never seen the movie last night. She's like, but I know the song. I was like, why do you know this song? Wait, she's never, she's never seen the movie. Yeah. Not till, not till last night. And then she's like, I I maybe have seen parts of this movie, but never watched it. But I recognize the song. You haven't yet told us what she thought. Oh, she liked it. She's like, liked. okay, this is this right. is good. Liked. Okay. <laughs> liked or loved. <laughs> Ryan's looking for love. I'm looking for love. I'm looking for love. I think I I think I know why the dog howls at the moon. So like I just want to know why where everyone else is not seeing that. <laughs> um but that 1967 cartoon series only had 17 episodes. So it, it wasn't like a massive part but I mean, of how, how long does that joke last right like <laughs> he's tar- he's tarzan but bad at it like yeah. we get it but <laughs> i'm just saying like i think so much of the cultural presence uh like my at least awareness of this before the film it really is down to weird al yankovic having done a cover of the theme song uh so just a little hat tip to weird al there <laughs> which i mean he deserves all the hat tips we can give him uh this film had mixed reviews on rotten tomatoes 55 percent baffles me <laughs> but it what, did earn what's not to love did you well, guys i mean ser- real talk like yeah. 55 is like that's uh, a nonsense rating right yeah yeah well and it did get two thumbs up from cisco and egypt uh, ebert i was surprised to see cisco and egypt he, he, oh so i wasn't they have taste yeah they're, and, <laughs> and they're very good at like taking films for what they are and saying like this does its job really well yeah, it's it's trying to accomplish a certain thing and it does it well. That's uh, that's what we're going to recognize. Not is this attempt, you know, this isn't great cinema, you know, the the art house cinema. So we can't give it a positive review. They're like, no, this is trying to be a silly kids film and it nails it. Nails it perfectly. But honestly, like it's it's a little I think it's a little bit more than a kid. Like it's one of those kids films where there are there are a few jokes, like not a ton, but a few mm-hmm. jokes that are like clearly for the adults watching the movie. But I really then, say very few jokes in that territory. Like I was I was refreshed watching it. I was like, oh, there's not a lot of jokes that I'm getting now that I didn't get when I was 10 years old. But there are jokes. There are jokes that are like, I think, cleverer than a kid mm-hmm. watching this movie that are still really funny. Especially like, the narrator jokes. There's the a lot na- of good the narrator jokes. jokes are fantastic. And, those and, are better and, as an adult. And the one that the one that comes to mind that my wife and I reference all the time of like when they reached Ape Mountain, they reacted with aww. Aww. <laughs> Not I A W W A W E. Oh, that's better. <laughs> like it's it's or or, or when, when when uh Chris Pomontade and Church trips and falls in poop. Mm-hmm. And the the one guy that says <laughs> that, that guy, guy falls in poop, classic element of physical comedy. Now comes the part where we all throw our heads back and laugh. Ready? And the other two guys Ready. come in and go, Ready? <laughs> <laughs> it's so and oh and like when the first when the, the porter falls off the bridge and the narrator goes don't worry nobody dies in this movie they just get really big boo-boos and then like it cuts to him all bandaged mm-hmm. up and goes see what did i tell you yeah and it's something i only noticed watching it this time because this is the movie that gives and gives and gives is Thomas Hayden church only refers to the, the main head guy whose name is kwame as quaim yes i heard that one <laughs> he's mispronouncing it. Um, it, doesn't really, it doesn't lean into it enough that like yes. as a kid you're gonna catch it at all it's just yeah. uh it's for, so for adults it's one more uh just notch against the thomas hayden church character like you don't really care. <laughs> i found your scrunchie the the thing i <laughs> think some great line readings the thing that i think like i recognized in this 
as an adult, right? The, the maturity of this film was not in having more mature humor. It was in having like more mature sincerity and well, dealing like, with like an, the relationship an, with more maturity and like the non-toxic masculinity. Oh, that's huge. I mean, the, the, the again, when I say that this film is prescient, like there's a literal joke about Ursula wasn't ready for George being comfortable wearing dresses. So mm-hmm. it's like, because like the narrator literally says, because Ursula's wasn't ready for George being that comfortable with his gender identity. They had yeah. to go out and buy male clothes from Neiman Marcus. Like, as, as forward thinking as she was, but it's, but it's a joke. Like it's, yeah. they know they're making a joke about it. And, uh, and all, I feel like all the jokes that involve subtitles are hilarious where Thomas mm-hmm. said, you know, like where they're, they're, they're saying like, the, the they're probably talking about how much they hate me. Like we really hate this guy. They're probably talking about how they want to do something terrible to me. The first chance we get, let's do something terrible to him. The first chance we get, like, it's so, it's so funny. Yeah. The, the narrator stuff and the subtitle stuff is, he's so were good. You, were you fighting with the narrator? Oh man. <laughs> fighting with the narrator was, I forgot that was in there. And when it like hit, I was like, whoa. Hey, having some fun now. And having having some fun now is one of those I think we as as like ultra geeks, we all have those like movie lines that are the ones that we have internalized that no one else has that we will say in in conversation as if other people will get the joke and having some fun now, which George says while fighting the lion and then the narrator says while messing with Thor and Max is one of those lines that I I do use in my real life that nobody gets but I I, say, is it like the the extra specific nerdy shibboleth where if someone catches this you like eye contact like well, I you know no, you know no no one's ever caught it. <laughs> it's I've too, never too I've, deep of a cut yeah. I've never I've never made eyes with someone across the chairlift when we get down from the ski run and say hey having some fun now it's never worked <laughs> uh, um it, while it, uh, we said the Rotten Tomatoes score is fifty five percent too low, uh, it did earn one hundred seventy four million at the global box office. That's like thirty percent too low. This is an I think this is an eighty five percent movie. See, I would say oh, yeah. uh, like I understand for some reviewers it, they're just not going to be able to give this review or this movie a positive review, but I would expect it to be fresh. You know, just mm-hmm. at least on the fresh side of the scale, which um, would be sixty five percent. So you're yeah. saying you're saying ten percent more. I'm saying thirty percent. Yeah, more. like in, in my heart, I'm with you. I just was a little surprised it wasn't even fresh uh, when I looked it up. Um, it did get a straight-to-video sequel, which saw some of the cast return, but not Brendan Fraser. Nor Leslie Mann. Uh, that was uh, released in 2003. So it's actually, like, that's a, a little bit of a gap there. For, mm-hmm. That's your classic for... Mask 2 scenario. <laughs> <laughs> um, recently, I saw this in the news, uh, because, uh, as you noted, there's been the Brendan Fraser songs, and lots of people have been uh, asking about his earlier work, and there's the stunt in the film where there was a uh, parachutist caught on the Golden Gate Bridge. Nope, nope, no, 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 no. Oh, Joe, the, Joe, the, Joe. The Bay Bridge. Save yourself the emails, my friend. Oh, <laughs> the Bay <Sorry>. Bridge. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. The, the Bay Bridge. You're right. Uh, and uh, for doing that, Disney put a mannequin in a parachute on the bridge, and apparently that caused real world traffic jams and local news reports about. <laughs> Yeah. Someone, something caught on the bridge, and Brendan Fraser has issued an apology. Uh, you know, twenty plus years later. <laughs> no jokes, jokes on all of us. That was actually the body of somebody who died on one of their rides. <laughs> they just hit it, and so that that sequence, I don't like. I know it's all stunt work and everything, and I know it's not actually over the bridge when they're dealing with like real swinging and everything. But <laughs> some guy was actually swinging like thirty feet at a go. 
yeah. on, on a rope. And that was really impressive. Some stunt performer was really swinging quite a distance. And Brendan Fraser did do a lot of his own stunts back in the day, which is how his mm. body got so wrecked. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, with all the, all of the mummying and, and whatnot that he did. But um, I, yeah, I don't know. I don't know who did the particular stunt for that, that bridge swing. I, I do love uh, that sequence is great. I, I love watching George be scared because it's like most of the movie he spends, he's, ignorantly confident about everything he does and like mm-hmm. to watch him have to I love watching him like look and calculating the angles and be like hmm okay how am I gonna make this swing because and and it, you know they set up they set up stupid little stuff like that early in the movie where you know it, it, it the the opening sequence has to do with George and his uh loss into the the jungle and being raised by apes and then they say like 47 vines away which like indicates that there's a standardized unit of vine swinging for the king of the jungle <laughs> so like Oh, it's just there's so much there. There's so much little goodness in this movie that I just love. And there was one bit of trivia I was trying to hunt down, and it turns out it may not be true. But the film is exactly it's like 90 minutes on the dot. And I remember hearing that for theatrical films, they had to be at least 90 minutes long. And this film has like it's 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 great. We love it. But there's a few pits where I feel like maybe that's a little bit of padding to reach 90 minutes, like the running sequence across Africa. Maybe. I love that sequence. Yeah, I'm waiting for it, but I'm also saying like, maybe they added a uh, one more moment into this montage so they could hit 90. And also the mid credit scene, which is one of my favorite scenes in the film. Uh, Ape uh, performing as a Las Vegas uh, show. <laughs> Frank Sinatra. Yeah. I love it. But I also was like, part of me was like, did they add this to hit 90 minutes? Cause it's barely 90 minutes. And I remembered like hearing at some point in this trivia, that films had to be 90 minutes. And I went and looked up and all i find are people debating whether that's a real rule or not mm-hmm. <laughs> films have to be 90 minutes and then also people pointing out like the first toy story which came out in 95 was only 81 minutes so um i i i, I guess it's just uh they needed 90 minutes um it's a good length the movie moves like it okay, does not yeah. waste it does not waste a lot of time. oh i did i like i have a new appreciation for the 90 minute film i'm like oh yeah. we need more of these because <laughs> they get a lot done in this too mm-hmm like I, I can picture some 90 minute films where this much doesn't happen. I, I had to watch this in chunks just because of the, the scheduling of, of things. And so like, you know, I watched like the first half hour and, and sort of around the half hour mark is when they have the dance scene around the fire, which is, I think like I'm being sincere when I say, I think that's actually a beautiful sequence where, you know, George mm-hmm. is saying, Hey, don't, don't be self-conscious about dancing. Like there's no one here to judge you. It's just me. It's just George. Like, I think that's actually a really beautiful moment that we could all take something from if we, you know, wanted to. And, and then like literally the rest of the plot happens in an hour (laughs) where, you know, they go to San Francisco and, and, and Tom church spends the most of that time in an African prison. There's there's a poaching storyline. There's, uh, meeting the parents storyline. There's the bridge rescue. There's, there's both the, ways, George, right? George and coffee. I love the Java 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 sequence. That's something again. My wife and I reference if I've had too much coffee, and she's like, "Okay, you're Java Java Javaing." Um, <laughs> and I also, uh, <laughs> I, I, I mean, um, the her parents, Leslie Mann's parents, Ursula's parents. They, I think they do a really. They don't. I was surprised by how little screen time they have. Mm-hmm. 
but how much they get done. Like her mom, she's not quite Lucille Bluth level, but she's cl- she's close. Like yeah. she's up there in terms of like being just a nasty piece of work. Um, and also it, playing uh, a caricature more than a human. Uh. Well, and by and large, and you know, I think there's like. This movie exists in this weird time frame where movies were set in San Francisco, which is like a thing that used to happen that doesn't happen anymore. (laughs) Were there tax write-offs at the time? Is that what was going on? Oh, Ant-Man, you mean the part of San Francisco that's external shots and then Georgia? (laughs) Like, I'm talking about, like, movies actually set in San Francisco. (laughs) Okay. So, (laughs) um, but, but they're playing this weird version of like East coast moneyed old money that exists in San Francisco somehow. Yeah. It, it felt very like a uh, Connecticut wasp. Yes. But, but I mean her scene with George where she's talking about like zebras and stripes and spots and like you are a spot that we will have removed. Like there's real menace in that. And I, I think it's a really good sequence between the two characters where she really gets the better of Brendan Fraser in that scene in particular. And it was really good line reading. Uh, oh, it's it great. Yeah. It's great. Cause she totally lures him in to, to a false sense of security because he's again, guileless. Like he, he does not have guile, so he doesn't see it coming, but he gets the, the threat when it's presented to him, even if it's presented somewhat obliquely. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Can I ask a question that might draw on old memories and not on the most recent viewing? Cause when Joseph was talking about like, trimming the fat in this and, and stuff like that. Um, I remembered a scene that I don't think I saw last night when I watched this. And so I'm wondering like, did that somehow get removed on Disney plus or something? I remember an insert of when, when Tuki Tuki has to fly from Africa to San Francisco. I remember a scene of him on an airplane being served a cocktail. Hmm. And I did not see that in the movie last night. I am uh, I'm on a Disney wiki that has a page listed as George of the Jungle deleted scenes. So I'm going to take a little scroll here. So maybe it was a deleted scene. I will uh, use this time. OK, so I'm glad you brought this up. Um, there are a number of non-African animals that are presented <laughs> in this film. OK, fair. as if they are part of George's Burundi jungle. <laughs> Uh, Tuki Tuki is one of them. Toucans are a uh, neotropical. So in in biology, there's a little bit of an antiquated uh, uh, terminology where we talk about things being old world and new world. And old world, you might surmise, is Africa and Asia. New world is is the tropics of the Americas. Um, for better or worse, the the toucan is a neotropical uh, near passerine bird in the Ramphistidae family. And I believe Tuki Tuki is a Toku Toucan, uh, which is also known as the common Toucan or the giant Toucan. Um, Toucans, while being a very pretty and charismatic bird, they are voracious nest predators and just eat the heck out of eggs of other birds' nests. They're actually quite vicious. <laughs> um, uh, so they're, they're, the uh, Tuki Tuki is, is one of the, the examples of um, anachronistic is the wrong word because that just yeah, means like, the wrong like anachrogeographical. Anachrogeographical. <laughs> yeah. I love that. I don't remember seeing Tuki Tuki drink a cocktail. I do remember like an Indiana Jones style graphic of Tuki Tuki flying from Africa yeah. to yes. 
San Francisco? They had that part, but I just remember. Okay, Andrew, I've solved it. Okay. That was in the trailer. Ooh. Uh, And uh, it says, it has a note that this scene was refitted for the sequel. So if you ever saw the sequel, apparently this may have, they may have used Mm. some unused footage from the first film in the sequel. Okay. So, so this, this film segment does exist. Yes, and I, you, my brain's you, not making it up. Somebody, somebody filmed a toucan drinking a cocktail for but this film. Oh, if, it's a great gag when they show Tuki <laughs> flying from Africa to to San Francisco, and they just like he flew as fast as he could, and it shows him, you know, like being served. Which oh, is on which is airplane. interesting because they turn to they, the Google Doc. I will be pasting this image because it is there on the Disney. But w- they wiki. also cut a scene from the opening credits of Fresh Prince of Bel-Air where he's on the plane flying to Bel-Air drinking a cocktail. So that, that image is exactly uh, what I was thinking of. Joseph. Is there in, in the, in the Google doc now. Perfect. Yeah. It, it showed up perfectly. Wow. On the Disney World. Scrolling down through. There oh were a lot gosh. of deleted scenes apparently. Uh, and once I saw that image, I'm like, this is the one he's talking about. So the, <laughs> the other, um, the other inaccurate geographic uh, instances that just, just from top of mind mm-hmm. is um, there's, there's a, a frequently cut to laughing orangutan. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is in native to Indonesia, Malaysia, not Africa. Um, uh, Shep, which I love Shep. No shade intended to Shep. Shep is the elephant for Shep, who... No, he's the giant peanut loving gray poochie. <laughs> <laughs> Played by an, uh, an actual animal named Ty. And uh, it's interesting. Brent Fraser actually talks a lot about the interactions with Shep because it was one of the first times where honestly like this was a bit of a maybe cinematic first where they were using live animal footage to inform the cgi uh renderings that they were doing to get some of the more dynamic shots but like there's puppetry there's cgi and there's a real animal and like it cut you know cut to cut it's kind of mixing it up a little bit which i think is really cool so ty the animal that all the elephant footage is based off of including the actual footage that includes an elephant. Uh, it's an Asian elephant guys. It's not oh, an African man. elephant. I was so oh, dis- oh, I knew man. this is, I, I figured that's where you were going to go with it. I was like, Oh no. Uh, she's also best known for portraying Botat in operation Dumbo drop with uh, the, the uh, late beloved Ray Liotta. And, uh, Danny Glover is in that one, right? Danny Glover is also in that but um so so ty excellent excellent elephant actress she only died like two years ago but um i i I, she's great in this role she's great in operation dumbo drop um she's not an african elephant not an african elephant unfortunately do you is there any inaccuracy in terms of you know like ape talking um or (laughs) no they really do sound like john cleese (laughs) uh not not ape but monkey the, the when when tuki tuki comes to george and says that the, the little monkey is having problems mm-hmm. and and george ta- i love the scene i think brendan frazier is <laughs> maybe at his bet like that might be the best scene for you know if we were going to submit this for oscar consideration i think brendan frazier talking to the little monkey and helping him solve his problems with his his monkey friends his monkey bully monkey bully uh, but like you know he's it's, it's it's a rudolph story uh i think we can all agree those are all white-faced capuchin monkeys which again are a neotropical new world monkey they're not uh, found in in africa so you would never in real life get a white-faced capuchin monkey uh going toe-to-toe with a lion like that even with george's help 
Um, I think the only other major inconsistency is when you see the close-up of George's necklace. That's not a crocodile tooth. It doesn't look anything like a crocodile tooth. It looks like a shark tooth, right? <laughs> looks like a shark tooth. Yep. <laughs> Uh, there might be other inaccuracies. Like I can't tell if those guys are speaking Swahili or not. I hope they are for the sake of this movie's, you know, uh, mm-hmm. sensitivity to, to other cultures. <laughs> but, um, those are the, I'm, I'm sure there's some San Francisco geography that got messed up. I, I know San Francisco geography reasonably well, but not as well as I know the distinctions between uh, neotropical and old world uh, tropical animals. So there's probably a lot of plants that are wrong too. I just don't know plants as well. All right. Well, we're going to jump into our spoiler summary of the film. And uh, I will just say, if you have Disney Plus, just pull us up and enjoy 90 minutes of laughter uh, and then come back for the rest of this discussion. But if you don't have that time, here's a quick summary of George of the Jungle. There's an animated opening sequence that shows that as a baby, George was lost in the heart of Africa in a plane accident. A couple decades later, Ursula Stanhope is taking a tour of Burundi. She has a great relationship with her local guides. uh, But then her fiance, Lyle Vandegroot, shows up with a couple of uh, foreign guides, spoiler, they're, they're poachers. Uh, <laughs> Max and Thor are their names. Lyle wants to take Ursula home from the jungle, but she wants to keep exploring. There's a legend of the white ape, and Lyle hopes if he can just go show Ursula this great white ape, she'll be satisfied and come home with him. While looking for the white ape, a lion appears, and Lyle knocks himself out while he's trying to run away abandoning Ursula, of course. Uh, then George appears and wrestles the lion. And I mean like WWE wrestling. <laughs> That's the, the kind of wrestling we're talking the, about. The rubber tree for the clothesline. Great for clothesline. Then George is going to take Ursula to his home, which is a fancy tree house that he shares with his animal friends, including a talking it's the, voice. It's the by... crashed plane from his youth. Oh, yes, yes. But uh, John Cleese is uh, the voice. And um, there's just something so distinct about John Cleese. And hearing his voice coming out of an ape is great great work uh whoever whoever it's, did that cast again me. prescient of like this is very reminiscent of of all the marvel movies we have now where there's clearly somebody on set doing all the work and then john cleese just comes and records comes the voice later so like yeah. this is the john cleese i, I am groot of of the yeah, George I, jungle I, cinematic I universe to, yeah I, I don't know who the performer in the ape costume was they do a great job it's all it's um, all Jim Henson guys. It's all it's Jim all, Henson, yeah. Creature Shop uh, work on the. Well, they do, fan, they do a fantastic they, job. Of course they do I a mean, good job with all these. This buttons. is only like this is like five years after the the first Ninja Turtles movie, where they, I think they really piloted all of the. You've got uh, a guy in a suit, but somebody else is puppeteering the face and doing the mouth work and everything. Exactly right. That so like, they've gotten pretty good at it by this point because it was it was late enough in that technology that they I think they developed it, but it was early enough that they couldn't just CGI it if it wasn't working. So they actually had to mm-hmm. do a good job with the puppeteering. And the work on Ape is a fantastic match with John Cleese. Like he does a great performance, but so much of it is the physicality of Ape looking harried or flustered. Which or, one do I uh, shoot? How about the one playing chess? <laughs> Uh, or, or or that you know that puppetry on the the like rolls of the eyes and the the looks yeah it's the, the eyebrows and everything well and it's, it's how much it's how much that particular character has to go from being the smartest person in the room to be like i guess i'll be a dumb ape now <laughs> like so he's constantly having to code switch between you know his real self of like the guy who wants the medical textbook so he can make sure ursula's okay to the guy who has to pretend to be just a, a dumb dumb ape to keep everyone right, happy. Ursula freaks out whenever he speaks, so he just pretends to be a regular ape whenever he's around Ursula. <laughs> at first, at least. Um, and yeah, like you said, that that moment of switch, like it's it's physical comedy that's happening. That's a combination of the classic element of physical and, comedy. 
and the, uh, the the performance from whoever is in the suit. Um, uh, George is going to be taken with Ursula and is going to attempt to woo her as he's taught by um, by Ape about proper wooing methods in some some comedic scenes. And uh, this is going to be a little awkward, but despite this awkwardness, uh, Ursula is going to be attracted to George, which, as we've noted, like, who wouldn't be? I mean, come on. Um, Lyle and his goons are going to come find this uh, crashed airplane treehouse. They want to capture Ape for the novelty of having a talking gorilla that will make them fabulously wealthy. There's some chaos uh, as the poachers try to capture George's friends and Lyle tries to rescue Ursula. But in the end, like the key takeaway is uh, George is wounded by gunshot and uh, Lyle and his goons are captured. Ursula takes George to San Francisco for treatment and recovery. So like we've had Ursula in uh, George's hometown and now we get the George in Ursula's hometown sequence. Um, while George is in San Francisco, though, the goons are going to get out and try to go capture Ape again. Ursula is going to tell her distraught parents that she does not plan to, mile, to marry Lyle, who is in an African prison at this point. They don't seem as concerned about that part as I, they I, are about can, Ursula not wanting to marry him anymore. Can I call out the, the lineup at the African prison <laughs> as they had to it's find the so person that, that shot George? It's yes. so funny. So they have the... Uh, the usual suspects. Yes. And it's uh, the guides uh, that that knew Lyle well are looking over this this lineup of uh, lots of people who do not look like uh, Thomas Hayden Church. I know him. <laughs> I'd never forget a face. It's, it's so funny. Oh, um, let's see. Uh, in San Francisco, uh, George is going to have some adventures. We've kind of alluded to with uh, getting uh, too much caffeine into a system, uh, saving uh, uh, someone off of a bridge. Women all over San Francisco are going to swoon over him. Uh, mm, and- I think they just like horses. Oh, right. Yeah, <laughs> of course. Of course. Uh, <laughs> let's see. In Africa, Ape is captured by Thor and Max, uh, but he's going to tell Tuki to go get George and Tuki's going to fly to San Francisco. Obviously, this is this works. Okay. Uh, and <laughs> well, okay. So that's one of the. I, I maybe I'm getting ahead of it, but we've already ad- addressed the fact like um, Ursula's mom trying to manipulate George and George not really completely falling for it. But mm-hmm. when but he does leave Ursula because Tuki shows up and says your best friend's in trouble. So she thinks she wins. Yeah. I mean, there's the great, there's the you know, it's it's a classic like movie trope of you take the person clothes shopping. Mm -hmm. But I, but I think that this movie does, you know, does it particularly well because George is wowed by the size of the Neiman Marcus in San Francisco, which is huge. But then it's like George, you know, the narrator of like George was impressed to find out he looked pretty good in Armani and he looks at the camera and goes pretty darn good. (laughs) And and then, then when he's at the fancy dinner, where he's wearing their Armani suit and, and the mom wants to talk to him. Ursula's mom wants to talk to him. He's eating a banana and he tucks the peel into his jacket pocket. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, she, she does like the classic thing. Like you need to, you need to le- leave Ursula. It's going to be, you know, what's best. It's, you know, you've seen this kind of sequence a million times and yeah. usually but it never works. with a guy who's just tucked a banana peel into yeah. his jacket pocket. And, and, <laughs> In other movies, like this works or it makes the the protagonist self-conscious. And so they leave or something. And George doesn't leave because of this. He leaves because Tukey says that Ape's been captured. 
Right, but it's it's that you know there's there's a great moment earlier in the movie uh, after they've gone to San Francisco when when Leslie Mann is showing or Ursula is showing George around and the mom sees them and they're like every movie is allowed one amazing coincidence and this is ours <laughs> so like they they call out what they're doing where like the mom sees them together and now she's suspicious. But I think the movie doesn't call out the other major trope where it's like, here's where we have our big misunderstanding between the two characters that are eventually going to fall in love and end up together. Mm -hmm. Right. And like the big misunderstanding is George leaves in the middle of the night because his friends need him. And Ursula thinks it's because her parents meddle in things when really it's because George was being a good friend to his family back in Africa. So yes, we we have that conversation of uh, George or Ursula's mom trying to scarf George. George does go back to Africa. Once he gets there, he's going to put on his Air Jordans and run across the continent uh, <laughs> to get back to Ape. Ape has uh, tricked Max and Thor into returning to the treehouse uh, where George is going to find them. Um, <laughs> Ape, I, I kind of wish there was a little more Max and Thor and Ape. <laughs> I think it would have. I mean, I think I think we w- it would have worn out its welcome quickly. But uh, the amount the fight, we get is really good. <laughs> the fight scene between George and and Max and Thor, including the, the Shep with the tukey tukey and the coconuts, and and when George like literally winds up his fist, <laughs> like it is so funny to me. Like, I, I, I think my favorite is is when it's like elbow punch, elbow punch. It's that is a great <laughs> it, it, it moment. It just has them lined up, and it just keeps going. Yeah, I, I also another thing my wife and I quote to each other is like Hans, Jans, Unter, Gunter, and Phil. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, so Phil's about or uh, Lyle's about to show up with a uh, group of German mercenaries, uh, and that's and the, the light of the German mercenaries. We don't know. Again. We don't know if Phil is, is from Germany or Austria or wherever they're all from. Um, another another thing I noticed. Okay, so when George talks to his eight brethren who have just done like their best Ninja Turtles impression, which again I loved. <laughs> Um, and like, and his, you know, his subtitles are, and I think there's like, I think maybe those subtitles aren't on Disney plus. I think there might be like a weird thing there, Mm. but his subtitles are, you know, Shakespearean in, in their syntax. And, and, um, a thing I noticed, I, I love the sequence where Lyle and Ursula are going down the, the rapids and they end up in the raft together and then they go through the cave. I will say again, based on my understanding of mammalian anatomy, that the gorilla that comes out the other side of the tunnel with Lyle, based on the, sh- the sagittal crest, which is the, the crest on the top of the skull where there's like muscle attachments for the jaws and making it, you know, having a strong bite to, to fight against rivals. The sagittal crest, uh, to me, strongly indicates that as a male gorilla that comes out of the tunnel with Lyle. Okay. <laughs> Oh, I did. I did not know that. Okay, so here, here here's what's gonna happen. We get uh, George rescues Ape. Uh, Ursula's gonna arrive uh, and help defeat Max and Thor. But then Lyle's gonna show up with those German mercenaries. He's broken out of prison. He's joined a cult and been ordained a minister. Uh, and now he plans to marry Ursula. So uh, in this sequence, he's gonna end up with uh, Lyle and Ursula on a boat going over rapids and Lyle is trying to perform <laughs> a wedding ceremony uh, so that, you know, then he has this happily ever after with Ursula, I guess. I don't think he's worked out the next step of the sequence, but <laughs> I, I have forcibly married this woman. Surely it's all <laughs> smooth sailing. Yes. It's, it's the Bowser peach dynamic at play here. 
uh, then uh, or George is going to swing down and get Ursula, and the raft is going to enter a cave, and in this chaos, uh, Lyle doesn't realize that Ursula is off the raft, and he finishes performing the wedding ceremony, and when we see uh, who is on the raft with him, it is an ape. Uh, and as Ryan is now just shared with us, it may be a male ape that is on the raft with him that uh, Lyle has just performed this uh, marriage ceremony for. I think saying maybe a male undercuts my understanding of ape anatomy. Which <laughs> yeah, I feel Joseph, like, is... <laughs> like how, how much do you want to challenge Ryan on this, Joseph? Definitively demonstrated is like, a male ape. Like Sorry. It's, not a, it's not like a silverback gorilla. I think it might be like a juvenile male, but it's, it's a pretty, it's a, it's a male. It's a male. pretty <laughs> male skull shape if we're going on skull shape alone. Which I get, like I'm not trying to do, you know, whatever weird sc- skull, <laughs> like skull. phrenology. It's, yeah, this is not a, a visual phrenology assessment. <laughs> I've just I've seen gorilla skulls and defleshed, they and they and the have male... a particular shape, whether it's a male or or female. And, and you see, like you see how high the skull goes up from the ear, right? That's mm-hmm. that sagittal crest, and it's all. And you see it in you see it in marine mammals yeah. like um seals and sea lions like it's you know it's a thing we see in in male mammal anatomy just and it, it, a lot of it has to do with like muscle attachment for jaws so we can fight each other i, and I can't so wait for someone to just be like i'm listening to this podcast episode about george of the jungle and i just heard the phrase a defleshed gorilla skull <laughs> i'm just saying if you disagree with me too much more i'm like might have to use my jaw muscles against you <laughs> All right. I, I'm sorry for my word choice there. No disagreement. It is a male gorilla <laughs> firmly established now. I might have to forcibly marry you. <laughs> uh, and then we see uh, George and Ursula get married and uh, live happily in their treehouse in Burundi while Ape is going to move to Vegas and become a famous stage performer. The end. Uh, I, the- God, just, just married on Shep's butt. Mm-hmm. Um, George's cape. Oh, it's all it's a it's great. It's excellent. There's, so, so there's something earlier when we were talking about this, Ryan, that you had said where um, this film, it, it is silly, but it's also not like it's not like, uh, you know, uh, the parody of like a scary movie franchise parody right? where it's just like, wink, we said the thing that, you know, was in these movies. There's there's still like an earnest sweetness about it that I think allows some of that silliness to not for me, like cross a bridge where it's like, there, there's no there, there. They're just, you know, it's, it's just reference for the sake of reference or parody for the sake of parody. Uh, and this is a silly parody of the, a Tarzan story, but it still maintains uh, the, this earnestness about it that I think elevates it. I, I, th- I mean, I think that's correct. I don't have, I really actually don't have anything to add to that. Like statement, like, yeah, it's, it's, it is silly, but it's silly in a way that I find endearing. And like I said, I think it's legitimately romantic. Like I, I really do find the the romance between Ursula and George authentic in the way that at least this movie tells that story. And like I, I, I have, I have no qual. Like there's a ton of things to have qualms with about this movie. Like it's it's a ridiculous romp through a non-existent African jungle, but I just find it delightful. So. I think, and, and, oh, go ahead, Andrew. Well, I think one thing that that I appreciate about it is, and, and this somewhat comes from being able to, you know, go behind the comedy and everything, but they're able to be extremely efficient by acknowledging, okay, you guys know we're doing shorthand here, so we can go through this faster because we know that you get it. 
because we're like announcing it as shorthand. Like, like when Thor and Max are introduced, like the first lines we get are about like how he's chafing because he's wearing 20 pounds of black leather <laughs> in, in the jungle. It's like, okay, these guys are the bad guys and they're doofuses. It's okay not to root for them. You don't have to be concerned about it. Like mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's shorthand for that. And, and so you just kind of like, okay, I get these characters. Like I don't need further development. I know what's going on. And Lyle very quickly, you know what you're dealing with, with Lyle. And so you don't have to spend any extra time with it. And so I think they're able to like kind of pack more story into the overall movie because of things like that. Um, I'm also thinking of, so Lyle has his, his gun lighter mm-hmm. and it gets switched out for a real gun and they don't like foreshadow that heavily. There's just a moment where one of the guides is holding the lighter and the real gun. And he's just like, I don't know which one's which. And it's, I mean, it's, it's super brief. It, it is it, Chekhov's it, gun, though. <laughs> yeah. you, know, you, you know, there will be confusion on but, this. But they but there's also, there's a they don't like pre-establish. They don't pre-establish it. It's like, we need Chekhov's gun for two seconds on a gag, and you see what's going to happen. And that's yeah. all. Like, we don't need to spend any extra time, like, taking this dramatically or, like, ensuring that you saw it. Like, if you didn't see this, like, it's not a huge deal, but like they didn't, they, I think like before that mix up, they had not pre-established that there was a duplicate gun. Right. But there's and also so just bu- in that buf- moment. There's a buffoonery to the fact that Lyle even brings that with him on this yes. trip where, you know, he's trying to impress the, the African guides with his crappy Polaroid camera <laughs> and his probably cheap, not real Cuban cigars. And they're teasing him about like the fact that, you know, they prefer the 35 millimeters ice, which they actually mistranslate in the movie as a, a, a Leica or some other brand. Like there's, there's a weird, very obvious mistranslation that happens in that scene, which is also kind of interesting. It's one of the few like flubs that I catch every time I watch this movie. Cause he clearly says Zeiss when he's taking the photo of Thomas Hayden church and then Kwame mistranslates it as a different brand. But I think, I also think, Everything you've said, you know, Andrew and Joe, in terms of what makes this movie work on sort of the winking at the camera, we know what we're doing, but we're not doing it in a way that's annoying uh, mode kind of comes down to like, again, the narrator, like the, which Mm -hmm. I'm only saying because that's how the the narrator, Max pronounces the narrator, but there's something about having the narration that makes everything about this kind of come together in a, in the same way that I think the reason arrest development is so funny is because there's a narrator calling the shots as the characters do really stupid things. <laughs> and so like, I think having a really good narrator actually can bridge the gap between comedy that might not work otherwise, but works when you just are able to call it out and say, here's the shot. The shot is, um, isn't it ridiculous that that uh, this guy's king of the jungle, like, he is strong, he is fast, he is smart, he is unconscious. Like, it's, it's like, that, if, if it's just a shot of, of the POV camera swinging through the jungle hitting a tree, that's not funny. But when you're listing adjectives about how great George is, and the last one is he is unconscious because he's hit a tree, that's hilarious. Like, it's a, I, I don't know, I think it works because of, of the... The, the narrator being so tied into everything that's happening on screen. Yeah, it, it, it really does um, function in a way that uh, just just works. And I think 
a narrator it can become a crutch and they actually go some pretty long stretches without using the narrator um where i think it might have been tempting to to just go back to that well and i i think we get just the right amount to the point where when uh when we get the fight with the narrator it's kind of like a welcome like reminder of mm-hmm. how how present the narrator actually has been um and i think arrested development is a good uh parallel to draw where um the a lot of the comedy is being mined in the the disconnect between what the audience is seeing and what the characters think they're doing and what the narrator is revealing to us, you know, all, all happening simultaneously. Can, can I say something about the narrator that is uh, like, I, there's something that I've been thinking about with George of the jungle and like the narrator is like another connection point to this. And I've been thinking about George of the jungle and I've been thinking about it as like, like this is a four quadrant film in a way that they don't really make four quadrant films anymore. Uh, at least not as prevalently as they did in the late nineties. Is that fair to say? Meaning, like they're they're aiming for uh, like adults, old, old and, children, and young, male yeah, and female, male and female audiences. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Where this is like, yeah, everyone can go enjoy this. And I think people talk about like Spider Man in uh, with Tobey Maguire was like a, a big hit because it fit that four quadrant territory where like no families can bring their kids to this. This is not a hard PG thirteen, you know, kind of thing. And so I've been thinking about George in the Jungle and Spider Man a lot. And talking about the narration reminded me of how much like that's like one of the things I feel like I've missed in Spider-Man movies is like an ongoing narration. Or... But in the, in the first Spider-Man movie, it's not narration, it's voiceover. Well, yeah, like he opens and closes with voiceover, but he doesn't he doesn't narrate through the film. I know, and... but I'm saying I think there's I think there's a subtle. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think distinction you're... and I, I you clearly see that as well that like there's a distinction between voiceover and narration mm-hmm. and I, I think this go ahead please. I, I, what I like I kind of want a narration in the Spider-Man movies because when I read Spider-Man comics like Spider-Man is talking to the audience all the time in the comics like he Do you talks... want a voiceover well I want I want him sounds to be like, narrating like a voiceover Andrew I don't know like <laughs> Andrew it sounds like I want voiceover I don't know <laughs> Cause, terminology cause, cause if you want if you want if you want narration that can only be done by one guy and that's and stan the man lee and i got bad news Andrew. <laughs> yeah that's that's fair but you know there's something about like having like having someone talking to the audience about what you're seeing on screen hey true believer this web sling is gonna have a real adventure this movie film and i'm gonna be talking about it for the next two to three hours Mm -hmm. you know what we get it in spider-verse everyone voiceovers their their introduction but oh but again there's a metatextual nature to that where and i think that's good i want the metatextual no i agree i actually think i think you're 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 convincing me of your argument by bringing up spider-verse because like there's something about the way that in Spider-Verse they're like, all right, let's do this one more time. That to me feels much more spiritually connected to George of the Jungle mm-hmm. than Tobey Maguire saying like, I'm sad are, that I have superpowers. You, well, the, the, like, the voiceover is usually like, I? the thoughts that are in their heads. Are you sure, you sure I want to know? Yeah. <laughs> sure know? No, that's why I'm watching a movie. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Um, like the, the voiceover is usually the, like the thoughts, like the, the thought balloon or the, or the, the thought boxes that they often do in comics for the last yeah. 20 years instead of thought balloons. No, but yeah, the they narr- don't, they, they don't do balloons anymore. They just yeah. do, they just the, do narration boxes of yeah. just like, do I really want to be a superhero or am I sad that I have superpowers? Which, but, but like, those moments in Spider-Verse feel more like the narrator setting up a scene. Yes. It's those characters doing it in their voices, but it's not like here's 
here's my internal monologue. Uh, well, and they can be something I think really effective in storytelling of combining, you know, the, the voiceover with the visuals mm-hmm. where, you know, somebody is saying something and you're seeing something slightly different, or it gives you a context or an oh, interpretation yeah, the, for what they're saying. The, the sad Peter Parker in, in Spider-Verse is the greatest example of that. I think and that's, yeah, it's like, but I was taking it like a champ and that he's crying in the shower in his Spider-Man suit. <laughs> and it's like, okay, the juxtaposition doing, was, of that. I was busy is, doing crunches. I was getting strong. <laughs> he's eating, he's <laughs> he's eating pizza in bed. No, there, it, but like, I, it, I also, like, it's so much yeah. stronger. And it reminds me of this George of the jungle thing. I'm like, I, but that also is like very Spider-Man comic booky to me. And well, like, there's also, I don't know why I've latched onto Spider-Man in particular. Maybe it's the swinging, but well, no, but there's, there's also like the fact that George is an unreliable narrator because he's an idiot. He's not an unreliable narrator because he's a liar <laughs> where like, he's never, he's never trying to pull a fast one, but he just often doesn't quite know what's going on. Mm-hmm. He doesn't, he, he means to, he wants to know what's going on. But he doesn't quite know what's going on. And again, I think that gets back to the guile. Like, guileness, I think, is a key element of his character, where it's like, other than the people who are themselves inherently distrustful, nobody decent doesn't see George for who he is as, like, again, you know, Brendan Fraser's interpretation of the character of, like, George is just a guy who wants to help. Mm -hmm. And I think... To me, the moment where everything comes together for who this character is and what he's trying to do in this film is when, uh, again, he's trying to get Ursula to dance. And and he talks about how, like, sometimes things don't work out, but something good usually happen afterwards. And then he just says, like, with a shrug and a smile that is peak Brendan Fraser, just charming, literally, I mean, literally charming your pants off until you're wearing a loincloth. He just is like, George is lucky, I guess. And <laughs> it's so sweet, but it's so sincere where mm-hmm. it's like, yeah, that is a guy you dance around the fire with. And you don't worry about the fact that like he might be thinking anything other than I do just want to dance around the fire with you because like I like you and I'm not worried about it. And what do we got to hide? I think uh, uh, in addition to like that, that guilelessness, what you're describing is like he doesn't have shame like he's not afraid of embarrassment but in a way that's like he's not threatening anyone with like because there's a there's a type of shamelessness that is a is threatening like or it's, it's uh provocative or transgressive right yeah exactly yeah that's probably a better way to right. put it that's probably a better way to put it um where where like there's something you should be with like there's there are plenty of characters in film who have no shame and you should be wary of them if not straight up afraid of them for that characteristic mm-hmm. and that's not mm-hmm. george mm-hmm. right yeah, yeah it's it's a positive quality that he is not you know like he's but, not worried about his self-image he's not worried about how he comes off he's just trying to be 100 percent authentic but characters in the movie who don't have that self-confidence or don't have that self-assurance who, who are suspicious because they themselves know that they are not acting in a trustworthy manner. And like, mm-hmm. I think Ursula's mom is the main exemplar of that. Like they are the ones who don't trust George, even though George has done nothing to warrant their mistrust, but they themselves, it's a reflection of like, I'm a person who I know I can't be trusted. So how can I trust this other person who seems sincere in everything they do? I better attack them. I better, I better, try my best to ruin them 
because it, it that it, it reflects more on them than yeah. you know the like it, and and Ursula's dad has that perfect moment where in a movie that is almost entirely family friendly he he refers to his own wife of like god that woman's a pain in the ass <laughs> And I think that that's sort of a magical moment too, where again, it's like, it's not necessarily a joke for the kids, but all the adults are going to see exactly what's, what's happening there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, I like what you said that it's uh, those interactions with George. It almost always reveals more about the other character than it does about George. Cause we've, we've got George, right? We, we understand who George is. Uh, so anyone who's having an issue with George, this is saying something about their worldview uh, that they can't, you know, except that there'd be someone this, that would behave that way. <laughs> Gentlemen, do you have any final shout outs or things you want to highlight about Georgia of the Jungle before we wrap up this episode of the protagonist podcast? Oh, I guess Andrew was being kind and letting me go first, which makes <laughs> sense as the guest. I should have thought of that, but I was just trying to be George like <laughs> and just letting everyone else have their turn. Um, I actually find George uh, to be something of a role model. I think, you know, being a a humble but capable person that um, just sort of relies on on the universe being a little bit luckier than the rest of the world thinks it's going to be and and trying to smile their way through the the problems that come up and, and, and looking to help people where they need to be helped I actually think those are legitimately good values to to show on screen, show in a character, but also like try to model in real life. So um, I don't I don't mean to be saccharine about it, but like I think there's a real value in sort of the characteristics that George portrays, and I think Brendan Fraser does just such a delightful job of portraying them. And I think the audience like i think leslie mann is the audience surrogate because it's kind of impossible not to fall in love with this dude while watching this film and there's something to me um that that both sort of exemplifies the magic of cinema but also the magic of this performance that brendan fraser turns in and i think we could all we could all learn a little bit from george we could all better ourselves by just trying to remember that you know if you believe you're lucky and that something good will happen next then you might be a bit happier better person for it and and i think we all need a little bit of that right now andrew do you have uh, any final thoughts i i think ryan summed it up pretty well there's a lot there's a lot of stuff in george that is worth trying to incorporate Mm-hmm. In in your own personality and your own characteristics, there's quite a bit worth emulating. And I think one of the biggest things is just uh, trying to do good things and trying to be happy. Uh, yeah, I like that. And a lot. Help. <laughs> yeah, and, and and help. Yeah, that's like he finds joy in helping others. Which like is when when Ursula asks, you know, did you fight a crocodile for that tooth? Goes and, and George is like almost taken aback. It's, it's the one time why, where why he's like, I do that. Right. It's like it's almost the one time where he's doubtful of his intentions with Ursula. He's like, no, I wouldn't know. I wouldn't fight a crocodile. A crocodile had a toothache and I helped. And like, oh, well, of course they what, had a toothache. I had the wrong tooth. And it's, well, yeah. What, I mean, what George doesn't know is that crocodiles lose their teeth all the time. They go through like thousands of teeth <laughs> in a lifetime. They, they fall out all the time. You don't really need crocodile dentistry, but George just wants to help. And that's valuable yeah. and, and sweet and kind. And, and, and that becomes like his, token that he carries with him is like this is from a time when i helped somebody and but but he's also like he's he's 
projecting all of this with also like an air, you know, with a, an air and a sort of physical manifestation of masculinity that I think, you know, modern American cinema, like it's reached again, it's reached like a toxic level where unless you're, you know, unless you have Chris Evans biceps where you can hold a helicopter in place, you're not doing a good enough job where it's like, no, Brendan Fraser looks amazing. He is the epitome of like the masculine form in this film, but he's doing it in a way that exemplifies kindness and understanding and wanting to help. And like that, we don't see that often enough. And I think that's really important. And so I think there's actually a, a real message embedded within this very silly, dumb movie. <laughs> I just wanted to shout out <clears throat> that everything had to come together in terms of each actor's performances, the narration, the editing, you know, the directing, the script work for this to not somehow just fall apart on itself. And they, they pulled it off. And uh, I think they all had the right vision for the tone that this film needed to work as a live action cartoon that is, as you said, going to be silly, but sweet uh, and, and dumb, but sincere uh, at the same and time. And I think, I think live action cartoon is something we haven't touched on enough in this discussion, but you're right. That's yeah. fundamentally what the movie is, is a live action cartoon. Mm-hmm. And but you're saying, you're saying, I mean, oh God, there's so many things we didn't even touch on. Like apes been kidnapped. And like, we kind of did a little praise early on, but Thomas Hayden church does such a good job of being this patronizing jerk that, you know, just immediately the audience gets like the shivers. Oh well, yeah, well, I was on a bridge like this in Maui. I saw it as a rock. <laughs> uh, and, like everyone, all the actors who are doing, or the guides, like they're they're so great in in elevating. You know, listen up, just... Quame. Let me talk to the troops. <laughs> uh, and and that's why this this film is something that we can still talk about. You know, twenty plus years on, whereas I'm sure there's lots of films that came out. 20, 30 years ago but, that no one real, kind of real remembers. talk. Joe, did you roll your eyes when I said George of the jungle in my, my last appearance? No, I was like, film? legitimately, I had just watched it with my kid and I was like, Oh, that was a good movie. <laughs> so yeah, like this is something that everyone who worked on it, like they should all be proud of having worked on it. And like, don't let the Rotten tomato score get you down. Like, yeah, this deserves a better score and you all deserve to be very proud of this. No, movie. no, no. It doesn't deserve a better score. Rotten Tomatoes doesn't deserve to exist. It's a bad <laughs> site that doesn't do like it, it's not like Rotten Tomatoes is not helping. Yes. Like but, name, but, name one project where you're like, oh I'm glad Rotten Tomatoes had a score that to, really to helped me contribute. out. Yeah, I'm glad I'm glad Dark Knight was 97%. I really needed Rotten Tomatoes to tell me that Heath Ledger nailed it. Like, no, get <laughs> like, get lost, Rotten Tomatoes. Like you're an you're a math equation pretending to be a critic. Like, go away. You're not helping. But, but right, I was going to say, uh, and, and when I watched it with my kid, it was not my kid clamoring to watch George of the Jungle. It was very much like, I'm going to do the classic dad move oh, of no. forcing some of my... And that's why <laughs> That's why Joe's kid only applauded 50, 55% of the time, which yeah. proves that Rotten Tomatoes was right and I'm wrong. <laughs> but, uh, but, but so my kid was homesick that day and I was like, okay, we're going to watch George of the Jungle together. And uh, he, he definitely laughed at all the right spots uh like the comedy i can't wait to show now. this movie to my kid like yeah, this, is is, on, this is this is like it's 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 you know star wars back to the future and this like yeah. intergenerational entertainment right where mm-hmm. we're passing it on <laughs> i can't wait i mean the only the, literally all right, i'm gonna be like i'm gonna real talk my kid is a little bit of a daredevil 
Um, he's 18 months old, and I'm already like he's already I'm saying he's a daredevil. You're already yelling out, "Watch out for that tree!" I'm a li- like the only thing I'm nervous about showing him this movie is gonna like, to he's going to start looking for vines. <laughs> And I uh, might not discourage him. That's the problem. It's like, I kind of want, like, yeah, go for it, kid. Like, I'll get you a helmet. Like, we'll figure it out. Uh, can, can I, in, 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 just as like a quick side praise. There's a trapeze like, school here in D.C. that my wife and I have oh, taken classes at. That's exciting. And like, I'm not terrible at trapeze, it turns out. And so like, if that's genetic at all. Um, your, kid's, your kid's all set. Well, I mean, I mean, I'll, I'll t- I mean, between you, me, and the trees, uh, my D and D character is Eric Croker, which are like bird people. I don't know mm-hmm. how much your you and your audience know about D and D races. Well, we just recorded a special episode talking about storytelling in D and D. Yeah, so I- I'm an Eric Croker monk whose parents were killed in a trapeze accident. Are and- you Robin? <laughs> well, Dick his, no, his name is Grayson. He happened to be raised in a bat themed monastery where he learned to fight crime <laughs> using bat based techniques. And and because I created this character, my wife has a birthday gift couple years back got me trapeze lessons <laughs> when you said our uh if trapeze skills are genetic my immediate thought was well the graysons imply that yes yes exactly. <laughs> just, if, any, if anything the graysons imply that the skills multiply exponentially generation to generation because the graysons way better than his parents who like died after a single rope was acid etched um so, so i was gonna i was gonna say in in favor of like kids appreciating these live action cartoons um, my son who is four could not get enough of like Casper, the friendly ghost. We watched the live action Casper movie wow. last Halloween and he was all in, which makes me think is like, Oh, he'd probably really enjoy George of the jungle and yeah, be like, pro- it might be all set. Time. Cause like he could not get enough of like Casper's uncles. He's like, those are guys are so funny. <laughs> well, he's going to love Thor and Max if he likes Casper's uncles. <laughs> yeah. So, so maybe I need to put this on for him. I feel like that was also a thing of like the the kooky, like the kooky triplet of other characters. I mean, the the, the other gorillas, the non ape mm-hmm. gorillas, sort of filled that role in this movie, but they weren't as present as the, the uncles in Casper. But I feel like that was a thing that used to exist in movies that doesn't exist anymore so much. Um. All right. I think that's going to wrap up this episode. Thank you for joining us, listeners. For show notes and links to all the other great Dueling Genre shows, you can go to DuelingGenre.com. Also, please subscribe to the Protagonist Podcast in your podcast app of choice and leave us a review. That helps us out. We would like to thank Scott Tofty, who composed our theme music. Ryan, is there anything you would like to plug? Um, Yeah, I, I do a podcast called Science Sort of, where um, my training is as a vertebrate paleontologist specializing in sloths but um i've been doing a podcast since 2009 where we talk about all kinds of other science uh depending on when this episode comes out i have a recent episode that i'm really proud of where i talk to um chef and cookbook author and youtube star j kenji lopez alt about his recent book the walk recipes and techniques so if you want to hear a hard-hitting conversation where i i go to the mat about which is really better, walks or cast iron. And if you have strong opinions on the um, gas electric induction stovetop debate that is that is just consuming America these days, we, we talk about that as well. So that can be found at scienceorder.com or wherever you get your podcasts. It's science dot to dot sort of. I'm also a frequent contributor to the iFanboy Pick of the Week podcast, which you can find at iFanboy.com. 
Well, thank you again, listeners. We'll be back next week to discuss another great character and a great story. So long. Real quick, before we get into the actual episode, Ryan, my kids had a dinosaur question. Hit me. Well, wait, are we recording yet? Yes, it's 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 on record. Okay, good. I don't I don't answer dinosaur questions unless it's on the record. <laughs> Firm policy, uh, personal, not personal. Well, but. so I can so I can invoice Andrew afterward. Uh, <laughs> um, but so so the question is surrounding uh, what is like what's the appropriate terminology to be using like pterodactyl. Pterodon, Pteranodon, Pterosaur. What's what's with the flying dinosaurs? Oh, okay. Like what, what should we be calling them when can we have of, a toy? Can of flying worms. Um, you want okay? Real talk. Uh, because I, I mean, I have a kid, I have a toddler, so I have a bunch of dinosaur books, most of which get this particular topic wrong. Okay. Um. Okay, so Dinosauria is a clade that encompasses the most recent common ancestors of all dinosaurs and all their living relatives, which include birds, right? Mm -hmm. The sister group to dinosaurs, which is a separate clade called Cruotarsians, which has to do with how the ankle joint is formatted in in that particular shared taxonomy. Yeah, you don't have group, to tell me, Ryan, you know. Right. It's <laughs> is the group that includes both dinosauria and pterosauria. So pterosaurs is the 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 pterosaurs are is the largest grouping that includes all the flying mesozoic reptiles that we think of as the pterodactyls and the pteranodons. Um the there's so so that group Nothing in that group is a dinosaur. They're the sister group to dinosaurs. They are flying reptiles from the same time period, the Mesozoic era. Um, that clade is completely extinct. So birds come from true dinosaurs and everything in that flying reptile group is kaput. There's two large groups within that. Um, that the, the Pterosauria, the Ramphorhynchidae, or the Ramphorhynchids, which are the smaller bodied, still have like teeth in their beaks and have like the long tail with the little um, diamond shaped uh, mm -hmm. a thing at the back. So those are the Ramphorhynchids, smaller bodied earlier in time. And then later you get the, um, I think, I think it's the Pteranodons that are the larger bodied, longer beaked head crest, no real tail to speak of. And that's where you end up with like the, the pterodactylids and the quetzalcoatl that's like the size of a Cessna flying around. Um, so so, so sh short answer is none of those animals are dinosaurs. They're the sister group to dinosaurs. They're the cousin to all dinosaurs. They, they sh And no, nobody you talk to is going to know the term Cruotarsians, but it, it has to do with ankle joint and how that's all put together. Um, and they're 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 all nested within archosaurs. So the sister group to the Crotarsians would be like crocodilians. So all of the things you think of as alligators and crocodiles are the mm -hmm. sister group to that shared grouping of of dinosaurs and pterosaurs. Okay, that that helps us. But so it's totally appropriate to like talk about pterodactyls and pteranodons, but we should not call them dinosaurs technically. They're flying reptiles. They're Mesozoic era flying reptiles because technically birds are also reptiles, right? So birds are also flying reptiles. <laughs> All right.
right? Yes. If you think about it, if you think about it, because like if in in scientific in scientific taxonomy, if you want to be as um, if you want to if you want to like group things in a naturalistic way, you have to include the the most recent common ancestors and all the descendants, right? So if mm-hmm. you want to if you refer to a group of animals called reptiles, that includes everything from turtles, snakes, lizards, crocodiles, alligators, pterosaurs, dinosaurs, but excludes birds, you're not including all of the descendants of that single common ancestor. Right? Gotcha. Gotcha. Which then begs the question, this is this is this is big talk. What is a fish? <laughs> oh, I'm not I don't know if I'm old enough for that talk. <laughs> but think about it. Like if we if we as land living tetrapod mammals like are descended some, from the single common ancestor shared with all fish, fish and then everyone's a fish th- there you go 